Our sermon this morning is entitled, Accused. Uh, not a very pretty title, one that maybe makes you a little uncomfortable, accused. Not a pleasant topic, perhaps. You know, a few years ago, it's probably about five years ago now, I was sitting in a courtroom in Redding, the capital seat of Berks County. Now, don't worry, I... I wasn't under arrest, or uh, I wasn't going in trial, but um, I was a jury member at a criminal trial that was taking place. And on the wall of that courtroom, first time I'd ever been in it, there was a quote from a 19th century English historian named James Anthony Froud. It was a very short quote, but it struck me. The quote said, justice without wisdom is impossible. Justice without wisdom is impossible. As I had time there in the courtroom, kind of between activities, I looked at that quote and I contemplated that and I thought, hmm, that's, that's a pretty profound statement. Justice without wisdom is impossible. Some of you have probably, maybe all of you have heard of the story of the Chamberlain family, Lindsay Chamberlain. <clears throat> Back in the 80s, she was, actually 1980, I guess it was, she was falsely accused of killing her daughter, her nine-month-old daughter, Azaria. This happened in Australia. Uh, there's A movie has been made of the events surrounding this court case. It's called A Cry in the Dark. But all along, uh, Lindy Chamberlain told folks that she remembered seeing a dingo, a wild dog, <clears throat> in the area of the tent. Actually, it looked like, it seemed like it was walking, going away from the tent where her nine-month-old daughter was sleeping. They were camped out there at a place called, at the time it was called Ayers Rock, uh, I believe they've renamed it now to Uluru, which was the original native people name for this, this giant monument there in the wilderness. Although the, the case against her was largely circumstantial, she was convicted in 1982, and even though she appealed to the federal court of Australia, that appeal was dismissed. So she went to prison. <clears throat> but after serving three years in prison, some additional evidence was discovered. And that evidence was in the form of um, something that other campers found. They found some pieces of Azaria's clothing very near the entrance to a dingo den. Well, in 1987, both Lindy and her husband were officially pardoned. But in 2012, years and decades afterwards, 2012, there was a fourth coroner's inquest. And the official report from that in 2012 here, over 30 years later, was that Azaria died as a result of being attacked and taken by a dingo. 32 years later, the Chamberlains were at last fully vindicated. 
Justice without wisdom, without knowledge, is not possible. So did the Chamberlains receive justice? Well, eventually they they did receive a type of justice. They said all along that they were innocent, and uh, finally uh, it became fairly obvious that indeed they, they were innocent. They received a type of justice, but if there were perfect justice, true justice, I guess the innocent would never have been punished, right? Three years in prison. But which is worse? Is it to be falsely accused or is it to be accused and be guilty? Justice without wisdom is impossible. You think this applies to the courts of heaven above? I think this also applies to heavenly justice, doesn't it? We serve an omniscient God, an all-knowing God, a God described in Jude verse 25 as the only wise God and Savior. So with this abundance of divine wisdom, we can expect true justice from God. In Revelation chapter 12, we read about someone who is full of accusations. Revelation 12, starting in verse 7. This is a familiar, a well-known passage. The scripture says there was war in heaven. Of all things, war in heaven, unthinkable. And yet there's the record. There was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon fought with his angels. But they prevailed not. Neither was there a place for them found anymore in heaven. And that great dragon was cast out. The old serpent called the devil and Satan, which deceives the whole world. He was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. And I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now is come salvation and strength in the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ. Why? For the accuser of our brethren is cast down, who accused them before our God both day and night. My friends, I, I hope that you have never been, will never become an accuser of the brethren. This is clearly the work of the enemy, our arch enemy. Perhaps you have seen someone accuse Or perhaps you may have been accused yourself. I think it's good to remember that Jesus calls us to be witnesses, right? He doesn't call us to be lawyers or judges, but he calls us to be witnesses. God himself does not propose to judge a man until after that man is dead. So why should we judge the living? When we think about justice and judgment and the court system, naturally we think about the modern-day American judicial system. But the Old Testament courts were quite different from our, our modern American courts that we're used to. In the Old Testament courts, there were no prosecutors, nor were there any defense attorneys. The accuser and the accused 
argued their own cases before a judge or before a panel of judges. The system depended on the honesty of the witnesses and the integrity of the judges. And the word of at least two witnesses was required to convict the accused. In Deuteronomy 19, verse 15, we read that one witness shall not rise up against a man for any iniquity or for any sin, in any sin that he sins. But at the mouth of two witnesses or at the mouth of three witnesses shall the matter be established. The ninth commandment addresses this. In Exodus 20, verse 16, the ninth commandment, as you know, says, Thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. Now, you know, we usually think of this as, we loosely interpret this as meaning, don't lie. And and rightly so. It does mean that you shouldn't lie. But this commandment had a particular, a special meaning for the Jews, It was essential to the integrity and the proper functioning of their their legal system, their justice system. I want you to transport with me back to a scene in Jerusalem. During the first century, A.D., it's the scene of an impromptu court complete with accusers, accused, and a judge. If you want to turn in your Bibles with me to John chapter 8, the Gospel of John, John chapter 8. This story is told in in only 10 or 11 verses here, but as so much of Scripture is, is, it is saturated with information, with detail. You know, the the. The obvious is not always emphasized in Scripture. So we're going to mine into this a little bit and take a look. Verse 1 just says that Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. So this is, this is talking about Jesus here. In verse 2, it says, Early in the morning, Jesus came again into the temple. John 8, verse 2. And all the people came unto him, and he sat down and taught them. And the scribes and the Pharisees brought unto him a woman taken in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, how embarrassing this must have been for her, right? This this is in the temple, a group of people sitting around there, Jesus, and the scribes and Pharisees bring in this woman taken in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, verse 4, what do they have to say to Jesus? They said unto him, Master, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. All right, so here it sounds like court has been opened in the temple on this morning. We have multiple witnesses in the form of the scribes and the Pharisees. You know, these, these seem like they're, they're in, they're certainly had a high standing in the culture there. These seem like believable witnesses, and they accuse this adulterous woman in front of the righteous judge, Jesus. 
there's, there's a lot of irony here. Right? It's ironic that in, in spite of their disbelief and their hatred for Jesus, yet the scribes and the Pharisees, by their action here, they essentially endorse Jesus by elevating him to the position of judge. They bring this case to Jesus and ask him to judge it. If you think back to our, our reading in Revelation, this, this scene kind of echoes that heavenly judicial proceeding that we read in Revelation 12. With one important exception, the role of Satan and his fallen angels as accusers has been replaced by the scribes and the Pharisees. They have become the accusers of the brethren. No wonder Jesus warned his disciples, beware of the scribes, Luke 20, 46. John 8, verse 5, the scribes and the Pharisees continue. And they tell Jesus, now Moses, in the law, commanded us that such as this woman, that adulterers should be stoned. But what sayest thou? What an ugly, confrontational question. Moses said, people like this should be stoned. But, but what do you say? You know, if, if only the, the scribes and the Pharisees had, had been truly interested in what Jesus had to say. But these men were not truth seekers. They did not come before the judge seeking truth. They did not come before the rock of ages to receive springs of living water. Instead, they invoke the name of one of the most revered characters in the Jewish history. And they say, Moses said this, but what do you say? You know, let's not even consider for the moment that these men were completely ignorant, willingly ignorant, that they were actually challenging the Son of God himself. I mean, even if Jesus had been nothing more than the Jewish teacher, which they thought they knew him to be, this question had been crafted as as a deadly weapon. Moses says this. Now, what do you say? You know, it might be similar if we, um, if we ask an American. Thomas Jefferson says this, but, but what do you say? Or, or let's tighten the circle just a little bit more. Let's bring it maybe closer to home. Maybe it's similar to asking a Seventh-day Adventist. Ellen White says this, but what do you say? Verse 6 of John 8. John says, this they said, tempting Jesus, that they might have something to accuse him with. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger he wrote on the ground as though he didn't hear them. 
You know, we, we're very familiar with Jesus' temptation in the wilderness <clears throat> at the hand of Satan himself. But here we see a temptation of Jesus in the very temple, in the heart of Jerusalem, at the hands of evil men. The gospel writer John unmasks the purpose of their question here. He writes that they were hoping to get a response from Jesus that would let them accuse him of something. Here's how the inspired writer of the book Desire of Ages describes this scene. Impatient at Jesus' delay and apparent indifference to their question, the accusers drew nearer, urging the matter upon Jesus' attention. But as their eyes, following those of Jesus, fell upon the pavement at their feet, their countenances changed. There traced before them, in the dust, were the guilty secrets of their own lives. The people looking on saw the sudden change of expression. The crowd around them pressed forward to discover what it was they were regarding with such scrutiny that brought on this look of shame and astonishment on their faces. But notice in verse 6 that that Jesus was crouched down to write in the dust. He wrote in the dust with his fingers. He wasn't standing and writing with a long stick to open up the floor so that all could see what he was writing. Jesus' approach to stoop over and write in small letters in the dust clearly reduced the size of his immediate audience. He reduced the number of people who could see what he was actually writing there in the dust. You know, the words he wrote were not intended to embarrass the scribes or the Pharisees. If that had been his purpose then he could have just spoken aloud for all to hear. He could have broadcast their sins to the entire group. But that's not what Jesus did. Jesus showed mercy even to these wickedly plotting men who had no mercy on this poor woman whom they had entrapped. While we're talking about mercy... What do we make of Jesus' choice of media? The sins were written in the dust. Beloved, I, I find great comfort in the fact that Jesus chose to wrote those, write those words in, in the dust. Although he wrote the eternal law into two tables of stone, he wrote the sins of these men in the dust where the wind could easily blow it away, or the foot of man could erase it very easily. These sins were not eternal, unless the sinner chose to make them eternal by failing to seek for forgiveness. Not too too long ago, I was sending in a presentation about 
some computer software, a computer algorithm called blockchain. <clears throat> I don't know if you've heard about blockchain. But it's basically the software <clears throat> behind cryptocurrency and Bitcoin. It's what helps make it secure and what tracks it. It is a, a computer program that establishes a chain of custody for something of value. So it's not only used, blockchain's not only used for cryptocurrencies, but it's also used for, uh, people have experimented with using it for healthcare records. Uh, they've also used it for real estate transfers. So it's a secure system that can track uh, items of value, usually abstract items, right, that you can't put in a little box under lock and key. <clears throat> I mention this because one of the big selling points of blockchain technology <clears throat> is that it contains what is called an immutable ledger, an immutable record. And what does that mean? An immutable record is one that cannot be changed or altered. It's permanent. Right? Now, a blockchain ledger can be added to, new entries can be made, but once an entry is made in that record, it's there. It's there forever. It cannot be erased or changed. This might be a positive thing if we're talking about tracking individual assets in the world of business. But I praise God that the deeds of my life are not recorded by God in an immutable ledger, in one that cannot be edited, or changed. Psalm 51, verse 1 says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to thy loving kindness, according to the multitude of thy tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Isaiah 43, 25, God speaks to us. He says, I, even I, am he that blots out all your transgressions for mine own sake, and I will not remember your sins. And in Acts chapter 3, verse 19, we read, Repent you, therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out. Ha have you seen an advertisement for a company called ServePro? <clears throat> I've seen this uh, recently on, on television. ServePro is a company that specializes in cleanup after fire or water damage. And they have a, a great slogan. Their slogan is, like it never even happened. Like it never even happened. That's their, their goal, their purpose, is to clean up after a fire, after a flood, so that it's like it never even happened. 1 John 1, verse 9 says, if we confess our sins... He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness like it never even happened. So in verse 7 of John 8, John continues and he says, So when they continued asking Jesus, he lifted up himself and he said unto them, He that is without sin among you, let him be first to cast a stone at her. 
you know, from the poor woman's viewpoint, I think this may have been the moment when all hope was lost in her mind. It seemed that perhaps Jesus had spoken her death sentence. It seemed like he was encouraging them to pick up a stone and stone her. Even deciding who would be the first to carry out this execution. You who are without sin, you throw the first stone. Overshadowed by her guilt, she could not possibly imagine that here in this august group of respected religious leaders, scribes and Pharisees, that there was someone, there wasn't someone who who had no sin. She anticipated that someone would raise that stone and begin her execution. After Jesus says this, again, he stoops down and he continues writing on the ground. John 8, 8. In verse 9, John records, they which heard it, being convicted by their own conscience, went out one by one, beginning at the oldest, even unto the last. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing in the midst of the, the crowd of onlookers who were still there. Beloved, most often, the guilty don't need to be confronted by us with their guiltiness. Usually they are already well aware of their guilt. People need hope, not censure. No one accused these men directly, but through the influence of the Holy Spirit, they were convicted of their guilt. And their well-laid plans were foiled. What do you think about this fact that they left one by one, one by twos, they left individually or in very small groups, starting with the oldest all the way to the youngest? Perhaps this is something about, about the wisdom that comes with age, about knowing when you've been beaten. Or perhaps the elders had already had more than their share of physical and spiritual battles in their life, that they didn't much care to take on another one, perhaps unlike some of the younger, more energetic men there. In the end, they all left Jesus and the woman alone. Left alone with Jesus. Beloved, I'd I'd like to suggest to you that being alone with Jesus is a very good place to be. I'd like to encourage you to find every day a few moments where you can be alone with Jesus. Verse 10, when Jesus had lifted up himself and he saw none but the woman, he said to her, Woman, where are those that accused you? Hath no man condemned thee? She said, No man, Lord. And Jesus said unto her, Neither do I condemn thee. Go, but sin no more. Again, in the Desire of Ages, there's a description of this encounter. And it says that this was the beginning of a new life 
for this woman, a life of purity and peace, devoted to the service of God. In the uplifting of this fallen soul, Jesus performed a greater miracle than in healing the most grievous physical disease. He cured the spiritual malady, which is unto death everlasting. The penitent woman became one of his most steadfast followers. With self-sacrificing love and devotion, she repaid his forgiving mercy. In his act of pardoning this woman and encouraging her to live a better life, the character of Jesus shines forth in the beauty of perfect righteousness. While he does not palliate sin, nor lessen the sense of guilt from sin, he seeks not to condemn, but to save. The world had for this erring woman only contempt and scorn, but Jesus speaks words of comfort and hope. The sinless one pities the weakness of the sinner and reaches to her a helping hand. Those who are forward in accusing others and zealous in bringing them to justice are often in their own lives more guilty than they are. Men hate the sinner, but they love the sin. Christ hates the sin, but he loves the sinner. This will be the spirit of all who follow him. Christian love is slow to censure. It's quick to discern penitence. It's always ready to forgive, to encourage, to help set the wanderer in the path of holiness, and to help keep his feet stayed therein. I'd like to just close with John 3.17. It reminds us that God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Amen.